Data Bytes are presented by Data and Society, a research institute in New York City focused on social, cultural, and ethical issues arising from data-centric technological development. For more information, visit datasociety.net. In this podcast, Mark Latinero and Paula Crift discuss the challenges to refugees' rights when digital infrastructures for movement can just as easily be turned into infrastructures for control by governments, corporations, and even criminals. Mark Latinero is a researcher at Data and Society and a professor and research director at the USC Annenberg School Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy, and leads its Technology and Human Trafficking Initiative. Paula Crift is a PhD student in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU. Her work focuses on the intersection of global privacy governance, migration, and transborder data flows. So, in 2015, over a million migrants and refugees made their way to Europe from places like Afghanistan, Syria, and countries in North Africa. It's hard to imagine how this crisis could get any more difficult. But as an indication for a comparison, in January 2015, and only that month, um, 1,600 refugees and migrants made their way across the Aegean um, from Turkey to Greece. In 2016, in January, we had 52,000 um, refugees and migrants making that same journey. And the sort of most recent data from the um, International Organization on Migration, and it's, it's quite remarkable that this data is, from, um, is updated to the 10th of May already. Um, but we see that there are over 180,000 arrivals um, in various locations, just over 150,000 um, in the Aegean area, and also 1,357 dead or missing who have made that journey. Now, with summer fast approaching, um, these numbers, one can imagine, are only going to get larger. And so after they make that journey across um, these various waterways, they then sort of make their movement up towards Europe, Western Europe. Um, now, the, sort of, the Western Balkans, so um, Serbia, Croatia, um, um, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, they have recently sort of closed their borders to um, migrants. But that's, that's not to say that they aren't still trying to get through. Um, and even in Hungary, which closed their borders quite a long time ago, there are also um, migrants and refugees are getting through those borders and finding their way um, to Western Europe. Now, before the borders were closed, last year, um, at the later end of last year, I went to Serbia to do some observations. And um, just to give you an idea of what one month um, in terms of border crossing in Serbia looks like. So in one month, in Serbia alone, 180,000 migrants and refugees crossed into Serbia. Um, about 55% of the, them were men, 16% um, women. Um, 19% boys and 11% um, girls. Now, a lot of the uh, young people, the children, minors, were accompanied by parents, but quite a few were unaccompanied minors, sort of making their way with either friends or by themselves. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure for movement, because that's sort of my main interest here. And so when we talk about infrastructure, there's a traditional infrastructure that we talk about, sort of buses, boats, and trains. And so this is a picture I took about 7.30 in the morning um, at the border crossing between um, Serbia and Croatia. 
of um, refugees and migrants waiting for the train. They've been they're waiting all night to take them um, across the border. Um, we also have, when we talk about traditional infrastructure, shelter. So this is also at the border between um, the Serbia-Croatian border. And here we see you know, shelter tents that are sort of housing um, refugees as they make their way um, up through um, Europe and into Western Europe. Um, but when we also talk about infrastructure, we're talking about information infrastructure. So these are the types of um, um, information uh, infrastructures which facilitate movement. So here is a, an analog example of that. This is a, a welcome center for um, refugees in Belgrade. Again, this would be really interesting to find out what it looks like now that they've closed their um, borders to refugees and migrants. Um, but in um, early November when I was there, um, as you see the sign, refugees welcome to Belgrade, um, they gave sort of information about the bus schedules to the border, um, the best routes, there was sort of clothing, um, donations going on here, water, that type of a thing. But of course, what really interests me um, and interests us here at Data and Society is the technological infrastructure, the mediated infrastructure, which is also facilitating movement for refugees and migrants. Um, and, and so in that same park, which I visited, there was free Wi-Fi put up by the, um, the Red Cross. And um, of course, a lot of the refugees and migrants had um, cell phones that they were using. And so this, the idea of the cell phone or the smartphone um, sort of has captivated, that refugees have, it sort of captivated the imagination of certainly a lot of reporters who have sort of claimed that smartphones are as essential to refugees as you know, food, shelter, and clothing. And this is true to some extent. Um, smartphones are certainly used to, um, by refugees to connect with loved ones, people that they've lost, um, people back at home, and also to um, find safe places to, or to sort of um, coordinate safe places to sleep and transportation. Um, however, the focus on one particular technology, like a cell phone, misses the bigger picture, which is that cell phones, social media, Wi-Fi hotspots, um, mobile phone charging stations, translation websites, um, instant messaging, wire money transfers, and, um, and the like have created a new digital infrastructure for movement, um, which is different than what we've seen in the past. And this ensemble of digital tools and technologies for movement and mobility is something that I've called um, the digital passage. And it's used in many ways to benefit um, migrants. And these are just some of the um, sort of digital tools and technologies that we use daily that is sort of collecting information ab um, about us daily that also refugees are using. However, it's not all positive. And so the same technologies that are used for benefits are also used to exploit um, migrants as well. So human smugglers are using Facebook and other social media, WhatsApp, Viber to coordinate um, and really exploit and profit from refugees who are vulnerable and isolated and um, really desperate um, to find a safe passage. So the same information and data-driven technologies can be used to control as well. And it's in that context um, that I'll hand it over to Paula to discuss how the intersection of technology and policy can work to control migration and refugee movement. Thank you. So right when it gets depressing, he hands it over to me. <laughs> 
Because unfortunately, it's not only criminals, but also governments that increasingly exploit these digital infrastructures for purposes of surveillance and control. And Mark and I gave this presentation a couple of months ago, and I was like, ah, oh, you know, but Donald Trump will never be the president of the United States of America. Now I'm not so sure anymore, so you all better vote responsibly in November. But unfortunately, it's not only Donald Trump who's making these kinds of proposals. So actually, one of the ways in which the EU responded to the massive increase of migrants and refugees at the borders of Europe in the summer of 2015 was to vastly increase the amounts of information that they collected about these migrants. Um, and two EU regulations in particular stuck out in this regard, one being the so-called EUROSAR regulation, Drone and Satellite Surveillance of the Mediterranean Sea, and the EURODAC regulation, which concerns biometric data collection at the border. And in what follows, I'm going to discuss each of these regulations in turn. So the EUROSAR regulation, which is short for the European Border Surveillance System, was implemented in 2013 in response to a perceived increase in migratory pressures following the Arab Spring. So the goal of the Eurostar regulation is to increase situational awareness of the external sea and land borders of the European Union for the purposes of detecting, preventing, and combating illegal immigration and cross-border crime. Um, so in particular, the Eurostar regulation mandates Frontex, the European Border Surveillance Agency, um, with surveying the external sea borders of the EU in a 24-7 surveillance operation using drones and satellites. Um, in order to obtain real-time pre-frontier situational pictures that they can then share with individual member states. And each individual member state, as you can see in this picture as well, is supposed to also set up a so-called national coordination center for the exchange of information. Um, what's important to take into consideration here is that this, the scope of this surveillance system is not only limited to the territorial borders of the European Union, but actually extends up until the border of third countries. So in, essentially the entire Mediterranean Sea is surveyed um, by drones and satellites. And what's interesting here, actually, this picture I found in a PowerPoint presentation by one of the private sector companies providing these technologies, which adds an additional layer, I think, to this discussion. Now, what's interesting is that the European Union claims that the same system can also be used to contribute towards saving the lives of migrants, right? Because it would allow the EU to detect boats in distress. But unfortunately, nowhere in the regulation it is stipulated what it, how exactly the EU is supposed to respond to these boats in distress, who is responsible for saving them. So actually, human rights organizations suspect that it's much more likely that the EU is using this technology to detect boats in international waters before they reach the European Union so that they can then send them back to the ports of origin. But the information collection doesn't end there, but also continues at the border. So according to the so-called EURODAC regulation, all asylum seekers above the age 14 um, are obliged to provide their fingerprints to the authorities of the first country of arrival in the EU. Um, this regulation was originally implemented in the year 2000, and originally its purpose was strictly limited towards the enforcement of the so-called Dublin Convention, which stipulates that migrants are supposed to, asylum seekers are only supposed to apply for asylum in the first country of arrival in the EU. So if you're an asylum seeker, you arrive at, say, Greece, you're supposed to give your fingerprints to the authorities. If you then try to continue your way on to, say, Germany or Sweden, the authorities look you up in the database there. They see that you entered the EU to another country. They are allowed to send you back to that country because you're only supposed to apply for asylum there. Um, however, in the year 2013, the mandate of the Eurodac regulation was expanded to also allow law enforcement um, agencies access to this database, supposedly in response to terrorist concerns. 
But from the perspective of a European data protection law, this is actually highly concerning because you're only supposed to collect and access data um, within like, the limits of certain purposes, necessity, proportionality, which are clearly not fulfilled in this case, particularly because giving access to law enforcement agencies to the fingerprints of migrants further contributes to their stigmatization as well, because it implies that migrants are much more likely to engage in terrorist activities than the general population, which on top isn't even true. And then what's particularly concerning, and this is as of last week, the European Commission um, published a proposal that um, is also supposed to expand the mandate of this regulation that not only the fingerprints but also facial recognition data of all asylum seekers in Europe is supposed to be collected. And this also, if this goes through, it would also lower the minimum age for um, integration in this database from the age 14 to 6. So the EU is suggesting that all fingerprints and facial recognition data of asylum seekers, vulnerable population, should be registered in a central database from six-year-old children onwards. <laughs> So, probably all of you are aware that, for instance, in response to the Snowden revelations, the EU was one of the most outspoken critics of the, of the US surveillance program, always sort of like positioning itself as the one continent that respects fundamental rights, et cetera, et cetera, in contrast to the United States. So I thought it was really interesting then to like look at these regulations which concern the surveillance and information collection of, of refugees and asylum seekers from the perspective of European data protection and privacy rights, um, to sort of like scrutinize how the EU treats some of the most vulnerable population members. So the EU makes this interesting argument that while biometric data collection um, of refugees and asylum seekers clearly falls in the scope of both the right to privacy and data protection within the EU, drone surveillance of the entire Mediterranean Sea actually does not fall in the scope of either because the surveillance of the Mediterranean Sea using drones and satellites does not involve the collection of any personally identifiable information. So the EU argues, look, we're only collecting information about boats, not about the people on those boats, so neither the right to privacy nor the right to data protection is concerned here. But a counter-argument to this could be that even if the EU does not collect any personally identifiable information, which is a prerequisite for the right to data protection to apply, um, the EU clearly does infringe on the private lives of migrants and asylum seekers, so the right to, the right to private life, at least, should still apply. Um, because uh, the right to private life does not only depend on identifiability, but also reachability, which, and this might be something for the discussion as well, is arguably also a much greater concern in the age of big data than identifiability. But just to walk you through this. So, basically, when it comes to biometric data collection, both the right to data protection and the right to private life apply according to European life. The right to data protection always applies to personally identifiable data. Biometric data is, in effect, information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person, so the right to data protection applies. The right to private life also applies because biometric data collection clearly has an impact on asylum seekers' private life with regards to the choice of where they can apply for asylum, freedom of movement, and, and the aforementioned concern about discrimination. When it comes to drone and satellite surveillance of the, of the Mediterranean Sea, in effect, the right to data protection does not apply here because it does not involve the collection of any personally identifiable information. But the right to private life does apply, in my opinion, because clearly um, the drone surveillance affects uh, the ability of asylum seekers to apply for asylum, freedom of movement, but also fundamentally their human dignity and physical integrity. So in this case, anonymity protects against identifiability but not reachability, which, as I mentioned, is arguably a much bigger concern in the age of big data anyway. 
But what's actually really paradoxically in this case is that it might actually be the refusal of European authorities to collect personally identifiable information which raises a fundamental rights concern here. Because what the EU really should be doing is to assess on these boats individually whether there are any people with international protection claims among them rather than what they're doing right now, classifying the entire boat as illegal migrants and sending them back. And there is a fundamental difference between an asylum seeker and a migrant. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. So just looking ahead, um, this is from a Guardian article in February this year, uh, which describes how the EU has scheduled a meeting with tech companies to try and come up with technological solutions to the crisis. So it's very interesting. So EU member states, in coordination with um, the EU border control agency Frontex, set up a meeting with tech companies and asked them for ways in which they could um, use technology to solve this crisis, solving in this case presumably meaning preventing people from reaching the borders of Europe. So one of the proposals that they made um, is to tempt refugees to download tracking apps on their smartphones by offering helpful information about sea crossings and conditions in different EU countries. So clearly this raises some fundamental questions about the ethical use of information technologies within this space and what kind of fundamental rights implications information collection has about vulnerable populations such as these. Um, and also obviously the involvement, of, the involvement and financial interest of private sector companies in this context. And I hope we can um, talk a little bit more about this paradox that Paula mentioned because it really sort of blows my mind a little bit because it, of course in the US context, um, not collecting PII is seen to be protective of, let's say, us, um, our privacy, et cetera. But in this context, not collecting personally ident identifiable information actually works against some of the, um, the rights that Paula discussed. And I think that's just a real interesting way of looking at this issue, again, from this European context, which doesn't always sort of um, square with how we think in the US, but of course it has um, major ramifications. Um, I didn't want to leave us with the sense that, you know, all the sort of technology and data collection, I'll sort of bring us back up, actually. Um, that'll be my job, um, but, but not quite, because um, we have some examples of um, corporate interests and also international um, multilateral organizations actually directly getting involved in using technologies um, to intervene in the migrant and refugee crisis. And so... Of course, we have Mark Zuckerberg, who um, has sort of offered, and um, it'll be interesting to see where this is right now, but offered to um, blanket um, UNHCR, or you know, the refugee agencies, um, camps and shelters with um, free Wi-Fi. Of course, there's a lot of um, detail there that we need to unpack, just in terms of, um, but because of course, and I think Surya is here, um, who could tell us all the things that we can learn from, um, um, logging onto Wi-Fi um, um, stations, et cetera, um, about the, um, and, and reveal about each other. Um, but again, all, with all of these interventions, I don't want to say they're all um, problematic, but we need to be mindful of the both positive and negative ways um, and the real pitfalls and unintended consequences of any type of intervention um, that involves digital and data-driven technologies in the refugee space. Um, and I'll talk a bit just about a few, and then we'll have time to um, have a discussion. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about the problem, problematic aspects of um, the Re UN Refugee Agency's biometric um, program, but also these programs are helpful in 
sort of making um, the distribution of goods and services and money really more efficient for a lot of refugees. And so here we have a um, coordinated effort between MasterCard and the World Food Program to give credit cards to beneficiaries and recipients of aid, um, particularly in Lebanon and Jordan. And so, you know, it's just like you'd have a credit card, they have a credit card and they're, um, um, they can go use that in, in various designated points of sale. Um, of course, some, a lot of these credit cards come with biometric types of, um, um, I guess, safeguards or, or requirements. Um, and actually, our friends at Leiden University, I don't think Yoss is here right now, but they are working with the World Food Program to analyze um, a lot of this data, this credit card. Essentially, the World Food Program is now a credit card company, um, sort of collecting data um, just like a credit card company would on every point of sale and where these, what, what has been purchased, where they purchased it, where they've moved. And so they've been actually to analyze some data. I think the report's going to be released in a month or so that says what products have been purchased, where, um, and that could really help aid workers in terms of you know, filling the shelves with projects, products that um, refugees might need at certain times of the year, et cetera. So it, it could be helpful, um, but there are a lot of caveats to that as well. I'd say the, the biggest, um, and I'll end on this point, one of the biggest pushes I've seen in recent years, in the last four months really, has been um, the use of education technology, ed tech, for the refugee issue. Um, and Education technology like Skype in the classroom has been used before um, in other refugee sort of camp situations. However, um, there is, is a more, I don't know, um, there is even more of a push on these um, ed tech technologies now. And so TechFugees, which is an organization, and they call themselves the TechFugees, um, which is sort of mushrooming worldwide with different events in um, Melbourne, Belgrade, Berlin, London, um, and also New York. And so I went to the New York event um, a few months ago. And the entire event was about, about 100 to 200 people in a room talking about how to design education technology interventions for refugees in Syria. Um, so this is an example of a, um, this is a picture I took of the TechFugees um, um, room where, you know, think about you know, groups of 20 different people sitting in circles um, armed with post-it notes, with a crepe station sort of sitting in the background for anyone who wanted to um, um, get a bite to eat, and um, trying to design technologies and interventions um, and really ponder the life of uh, refugees in the um, Zachary refugee camp in um, Jordan. And I would just say that we really need to be somewhat wary of these quick fixes um, and understand the unique context that refugees um, have in both Europe and even here in America. Um, many are experiencing trauma from conflict, and how to design education technologies to deal with that is, is a really hard thing to do. It's hard to develop any ed tech, tech, education technologies that actually work, even here in America. Um, so um, let alone designing it for these populations um, overseas and in refugee camps. And of course, refugees are the most vulnerable populations really in the world today. And so this is a picture of um, the Zachary refugee camp. And so um, you know, really understanding that context is crucial to any type of um, intervention. 
And really, there's just a higher duty of care when it comes to intervening on behalf of refugees using any types of technologies, particularly data-driven ones. And so with that, we have a, a lot of time, actually, to have a real conversation about this. So I welcome, again, your questions, thoughts, and comments. Thank you. Thanks.